I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. The Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Welcome, everybody, to the Ranch Investor Podcast. Coulter DeVries back with a very special guest. I've been trying to get Rich Bradbury on for quite a while now, Rich, and here you are in person. Happily you've been here in person. You came from Oregon to Billings, Montana. Today you brought 100 degree weather with you for the start of September, but I'm happy to have you here. So let's just get started and let's, uh, where do you think this war is going with Vladimir, Vladimir Putin? <laughs> No, before before we jump into that, I mean, who do you think's gonna win? No, I'm kidding. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Give us a background. Who is Rich Bradbury? Why did I ask you on? What's your history? What's your story? Um, tell us who you are. All right. I'm probably not gonna be able to be very comprehensive in the beginning, but I'll do the best I can. Um, I'm Rich Bradbury. I'm a rancher from a rancher and a Real estate agent from Lakeview, Oregon. I was, grew up in a little town, Clush. So when, I went to one room schoolhouse until I was in eighth grade. One room schoolhouse. Yes. Kind of a Montana thing too. Yeah. But yeah. you're 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 a remnant. Yes. <laughs> we still actually still have it. So, um, but um, I grew up in a, so Clush is probably one of the most remote places in the lower forty eight states. Um, the joke is it's as far away from any McDonald's or Walmart that you're, you can get when you're down in the, in the lower 48 states, not counting Alaska. But I grew up on a ranch there, um, a big uh, family ranch that my grandfather put together over the years. Um, he, uh, the question is always not to go too deep. Anyways, you so, can go as deep as you want. We got time. He, Long form podcasting, right? Yeah, yeah. So my family sort of pioneered that part of southeastern Oregon, not directly. Um, Irish Seven Irish brothers came to the United States from Ireland and worked in San Francisco and put together sheep herds. And as they got, the, the deal was they'd work down around Dublin, California, which is in the Bay Area, and run sheep in the hills there around San Francisco. It's great cow country, great sheep country. And the, as they built their own stock, they expanded out and they um, got to our little piece of Oregon and when they got there it was the Indians, the trappers, and the guys with the sheep and that was my family. And they would, uh, they set up the same type of system with uh, their relatives from Ireland and then they'd bring them directly to from Ireland and then they'd set them up in the sheep business the same. So the little community I live in is a uh, pretty, uh, what's that word? Uh, Inter interrelated, so yeah, generational. I mean, yeah. who else are you gonna marry but the rancher's daughter down the road? Yeah, so sometimes you gotta go out of out of the community to find a, so you're not getting into any trouble. But <laughs> um, in the '60s, late '60s and early '70s, everybody um, transitioned to ranching and um, cattle. And my grandmother had a saying: is that you can make a uh, Sheep man a cattleman, but you can't make a cattleman a sheep man. I've heard that. I remember heard that the, in Colorado. Yeah. I remember sheep as a child. Uh, there were still some bands of sheep around. 
but they went away. And then my dad married into this family, and uh, his father ran the Ziatch Ranch, which is at one time one of the ten biggest ranches that's owned by Simplot now. For so this, 19 years. This is to give people context. This is Eastern Oregon. Now this is the this is the Great Basin. The Great Basin. This is yeah. not the Willamette Valley. Yes. If we could have the Great Basin be its own state, we'd be very happy with that. I hear that's very common in Oregon. You yeah. kind of like to join Idaho. I hear there's a push of movement for that going on. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, culturally as much as anything. Um, we have more in common with the Nevada, Northern Nevada and parts of Utah and Idaho than we do with almost anywhere else. Um, so I did that. My parents were really big on getting out and seeing, um, experiencing other things. So they encouraged me to leave the ranch, which I did. I came back, started a cow herd. And we were, Chloe and I were talking earlier about it. 2008 came along, I ended up in the oil patch for uh, a decade and uh, slowly started coming back home in, uh, in 2015. And, have transitioned from the oil field back to ranching and one of my other passions was real estate and uh, I think one of the things that I like best about um, real estate kids had when you live in out of the remote area mail is your lifeline it, it was before internet and everything so um, I was very fortunate. My parents got Wall, the Wall Street Journal. It came about two weeks later than, than it should, but I would cruise over that. But my, and then, of course, we got the Sears Wish Book. So, about October, so we could plan on all of our uh, gifts that we wanted to get. But probably the most exciting thing for me, and uh, I hope I'm not stepping on anybody's toes here, but when the properties would come out for Western Livestock Journal, and I could just cruise over ranches. I very much love the area where I'm at, and I love ranching there, but I love the idea of ranches in other places and how they were broke out. And even in the short parts of the properties journal that comes out quarterly, there were stories that you could tell and you could, and you could match it back to people that you've heard of. And um, so I always had, I always held on to that little thing. And so when I had the opportunity to leave the oil field and really sort of set up my own thing, I thought, um, real estate's going to be a part of it. Ranching's still a part of it, so um, I uh, get up at four o'clock in the morning, and sometimes I wander in the house about seven, trying to do all my cow stuff early and on the weekends, and then um, real estate the rest of the time. I had no idea. I got into. I had good timing. I got into the oil field at the peak, and I got into real estate at the peak, and we're going to see. We're probably going to. We're in transition now, where it's not going to be so um, busy, but. It was uh, just an interesting time in Luck of the Irish, I guess. <laughs> well, I didn't come all the way from Ireland to have a bunch of free grazers piss all over me land. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. Uh, so you got into the oil field at the peak, and you got into the real estate business at the peak, but I want to hear more about Eastern Oregon, because sounds like uh, you guys were out there when uh, there was free grazing going on. Like, they were that early that you just moved bands of sheep around, and... That was common in Montana too, is that one brother, normally with the sheep herders, they would come from, gosh dang it, the, the region between France and Spain. Basque. Basque. We have a lot of Basque. A lot of Basque in northern actually, uh, Nevada, cousin, southern Idaho. Yeah, I actually have a cousin. We married into a Basque family from northern 
or my, one of my aunts did, and so his last name is Ugaldi. And the running joke is, I'm a pretty big guy. I'm 6'4", and uh, over 250 pounds. I have a cousin that's even bigger than I am. And uh, then I have, we have another, the Bass cousin, and he probably outweighs both me and my other cousin, and is three inches taller, and he's the Basque. And he's from the large part of the Basque, so yeah. You are a big guy, I was gonna ask, did your Levi's even fit by the time you got a late Sears catalog and then they arrived in the mail? No, my mom was constantly, <laughs> to this day, she's worried about my son and getting the pants just right. He's, he's sprouting up really fast, and so yeah. But when you live in plush, nobody cares because the, it was, uh, when I was growing up, it was so, it took so long to get into town and flat tires, and the, the vehicles and the equipment's not like it was, so we spent a lot of time in this remote area, so. Your mom would order them three sizes too big, and then you'd just have to use Balin twine to hold them up until yeah. you grew into them, right? Uh, yeah, and I have to confess I've used Balin twine much later in life, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bad habit, you don't ever give up, I think. <laughs> um, so Eastern Oregon, plush? Yes. Now, where is that from the Rajneeshkis? Oh, um, it's about three hours to the east and a little bit south. So if, if anyone wants further context about Eastern Oregon, how it's big country, uh, check out Wild Wild Country on Netflix. Yeah, Netflix, yeah. Yeah, and actually the, the guy who ends up buying that ranch is Montana's uh, most wealthiest individual, Dennis Washington. Yes. He is the most uh, significant self-made billionaire from, of Montana. But he bought that ranch, but that's an interesting story about how isolated and rural you are. And yes. Those rolling mountain hills of Eastern Oregon, was, we call them coolies, but they're just a whole bunch of steep coolies and yeah. rough country. And it takes Basque sheep herders. It, you, you, there's not, it's not easy to get around. Well, the landscapes are just dramatic. I mean, I guess when you're, I'm sitting here in Montana, I'm talking about dramatic landscapes, but the, the war and the romance of the Great Basin is very much different. It's large tracts of sagebrush and uh, these giant geological faults that just randomly shoot out of the, out of the valley floors and they catch a lot of water and it's sort of how the whole Great Basin works, and it's a different type of beauty. And it's something that I call myself son of a Great Basin. It's sort of in my blood, like the smells and everything of it. And I love coming up to Montana, like it's a different type of air up here. And uh, it's relaxing, but um, I think that there is a certain um, percentage of people on the West Coast and even across the world that really like that high desert. And when you know where to find the beautiful parts of it, they're breathtaking, but it's just not something that you see in, like Oregon doesn't really spend a lot of time advertising Eastern Oregon, which makes up about two thirds of it. So you're not gonna see many pictures of the Great Basin or anything because this doesn't sell the same way as the forest and everything. The forest and, and the high growth areas like the Willamette where, yeah. where you're, um, perennial or permanent planting orchards and vineyards and stuff i mean that's you're gonna get in that seventeen thousand dollars an acre at least there so that's worth 
how many acres compared to Eastern Oregon? One acre is the equivalent of 120 maybe in so Eastern Oregon? <laughs> conventional wisdom says like a typical acreage in Eastern Oregon is about $500 an acre. Uh, it changes with the amount of water it has on it or what kind of feed it has on it, but the old school guys that price stuff, that $500 per acre is really still in their head. So, um, they're still stuck on that, huh? Yeah. And we'll get into it probably later, but when you really dive into it, there's some really great land opportunities if you can break out of that framework of thinking in the Great Basin. Well, let's get into it now. Um, how much how much BLM are you going to get with that? So let's talk about Oregon because Eastern Oregon, because the uh, the difference is Nevada is like what ninety five percent BLM. I think that so we go by publicly publicly owned. That's how we because BLM Forest Service they sort of intermingle and then their state blocks of land that are owned. They all have different rules as how you can graze on them um, and different types of access and less environmental pressure. Um, but, what were, I'm sorry, I lost the Well, we're, so uh, if you're going to buy a place in Eastern Oregon, how much is deeded, how much is leased? Because I know a lot of guys in Eastern Montana and uh, Northeast Montana where the Basque people settled, the real rough areas, the breaks. Uh, which is still BLM today because it, it never got settled. It's gumbo. It's really tough. No water. Yeah. I mean, that's why things didn't get homesteaded. It was no water. But today, if you're a ranch buyer and you're a rancher, you're a cattleman, you want to go find something that's a little bit deeded with a shit ton of BLM. Yeah. Yeah. And in your case, probably Forest Service. In Arizona's case, I've seen places that are like 10 acres deeded. Yeah. with 250,000 acres of forest service lease? We're not that extreme yet, but uh, yeah, ideally you're looking at probably 10 to 20% deeded and the rest is gonna be your permits. And then like in Nevada, they have permits where they just come back and wean the cattle at the deeded land. And then they go out, they come in, they take the calves off, the cows go out one way and then they Certain they rotate them around on public land, and by the time they come back around next week in season, they've been all through the public permits. So they have winter and summer permits, which one of the I think one of the hardest things to get is a piece of deeded land that has a winter permit because it works so much better with. If you can have your my our philosophy is the more you can have the cattle out, it's a cleaner environment. They do better. Desert feed is amazing. It's probably a lot like the Wyoming buffalo grass or buffalo grass we have here. So the, the feed that's under that sagebrush microbiome is amazing. My calves just my calves just came off of Baby's Butte, which is our permit that's tied to the MC Ranch. It's um, it's about four hundred twenty-five thousand acres. So we have a well. Before we get into the MC Ranch, Rich, let's keep talking about this because that's a topic we will touch on. Anyway, but I was just giving <laughs> a, a scope of the thing. So we have two range riders out there all the time, and those calves come in, and they, they the maze, the permits actually offer really great safe source of food, food protein, and really make what those ranches are. And then your hope is on your public on your deeded land that you can have enough water 
and enough thing to grow enough hay to get your cattle through the winter. Well, and that's the big fight in the Great Basin, isn't it? Is that so? My people, the uh, the Bundys and the Hammonds, uh, Eastern Oregon standoff. Uh, what town was that? Malheur. It was the Malheur. Mal yeah, Malheur Wildlife Refuge. Isn't does, isn't that stemming from the the case of they own their claim is a claim to water rights within Forest Service or BLM holdings that they own the water on that land. So here's where we get really complicated. And I'm no attorney and this is very constitutional yeah. shit we're talking about here in private property rights and it's complicated. It's very complex. The interesting thing about Nevada is your public permits are tied to the water that you have, the water rights, not to like the Homestead Act like Oregon. So originally the people that pioneered Oregon, they had the government set aside a place for them to home base out of and then they probably at the beginning before permits were organized and everything and they'd free graze around that and then but they'd have a home base. And then as people came and left, the guys that were doing better bought up the the private land and consolidated it with theirs. A lot of my family, they came out, got their piece of deeded land, raised the sort of made it for themselves, sold everything, and then went back to Ireland. So, and then Nevada, and I can't speak to it that much, I need to learn more about it, and in the future I probably will, but their their water rights are actually dictate what their permit is. Okay. Yeah. And that would, that would, so that would dictate carrying capacity. So, in Nevada, the, the grazing permit on it's mostly BLM in Nevada, yeah, right? It's it not a lot of Forest Service. So that's attached, the grazing permit, stocking, the allow, what they allow you to stock is based on water availability, how much water is there for the lives, which makes sense. I think that doesn't the issue come down to who owns that water? And if BLM claims that they own the water, then that, that's a takings. That was taking from the rancher who had always used that water, it was taking from him without due compensation. Yeah. Or, or deducting, decreasing his carrying capacity. So say he has enough water for 3,000 head all year, if they limit his numbers to 500 head, the claim is that that's a takings. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is when you go throughout Nevada and Oregon, especially in the desert area, you'll find that most of the springs and water rules are on private land, even out where the permits are. A lot of that has to do with the railroad checkerboarding of everything and when people are able to buy stuff up. So when you get into permits in the Great Basin, things get really complicated really fast and we have a lot of outside um, environmental interests that have divergent um, ideas as to how that public land should be uh, managed and cared for. And the 90s were super spooky because they were so radical. I remember as a kid, um, they, even in Plush, which is this little town of 70 people that you have to drive an hour to get to from a town of 2,000, but you have to drive two hours from a town of any size at all, um, they would come out and spray paint. You'd find dead animals. Um, it was just, uh, there's just a lot of things going on in places where I'd grown up and never really seen people, but 
I'd see people. I'd see people walking across the desert. I've seen some crazy stuff. Anyways, but was this at Burning Man? No, <laughs> no. This was uh, this is in places where you wouldn't expect to see people. Right? <laughs> Even on a horse, it takes a long time to get there. And uh, um, so, Oregon, with the timber and the activism in Portland, even you think it's bad. It's bad now, but that's always that undertone in Oregon's always been there. It's really been a center for environmental um, ideas and activism. All, yeah, and a lot of Oregon is unique. The land use laws in um, Oregon are really unique because of the governor I had named Tom McCall, and uh, he was pretty. He was not progressive in a bad way, but he was progressive in the idea of keeping open landscapes open, and uh, so. It is an infringement on what people traditionally think is their property rights, but it also is an idea of what are we preserving and um, what do we want it. And his main driving factor was he didn't want to see the Oregon coast be turned into like Malibu and just condominiums nonstop for miles and miles. And that there's a holdover in the eastern Oregon because of the policies that they developed on the eastern or the western side of the state. And so. Um, People can move to Oregon, want to buy property, and think that they have a bunch of rights. And because of the Oregon land use laws, they don't have as much rights as they think. But it has preserved these vast open spaces that uh, I, I appreciate. And uh, it's sort of a double-edged sword. It's, it's good for generations to come, but when you're trying to navigate it and make stuff happen economically, it can be a hindrance. That would be a challenge, and um, I'm glad you brought up the management of BLM and Forest Service and how that's there's conflicting agendas and viewpoints there, and uh, it's no matter what those federal agencies do, they're going to get sued. It's gonna it's going to be decided in court. So whether they allow more grazing, uh, western watersheds is going to sue them if they allow more wolves oregon cattlemen is going to sue them so that is i was thinking about that today coming back from cascade montana that issue came up about uh tragedy of the commons and for anyone who who doesn't recall econ 101 tragedy of the commons was when small uh, freehold farmers in, in the kingdom of UK, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, so the UK, the United Kingdom, small freehold farmers could access public land per se. They could graze in there with no, no restrictions and because everyone owned it, no one took care of it. And so you had no economic incentive to pull your cows off and the and you you actually had an economic incentive to leave them on as long as possible because it didn't take forage away from your home base. So these commons just got overgrazed mm -hmm. and became eroded, became dust, and that's that was the tragedy of commons. Well, we are dealing with a new tragedy of commons today. So when your forefathers came out from Ireland and they were. Uh, free grazing sheep in the American West, uh, that was commons. There was a lot of mixed bands. There's a lot of people 
that would their band would follow yours even though there's no forage left and that's when we get the we get the taylor grazing act right which mm -hmm. which started blm but today's tragedy of commons is that everyone thinks they own public land but nobody's responsible for it so everyone thinks they have a vested interest in it and they're going to sue and they're going to it's going to cost taxpayers money to fight it in court to defend the blm's decision one way or the other and that's and this is the this is sort of sad commentary on the the litigious of it um because it's taking away the lawsuits take away the specialist the range specialist's time to actually be on the resource and to be doing their job that they're educated to because they're filing paperwork they're getting stuff straightened out for lawsuits and so each blm office um only has so many human resources that they can allocate to any given thing. And since the 80s and up until now, m more and more of those resources are going to wildland firefighting and to the lawsuits that they have to deal with that have been brought in by different special interest groups. And I, wanna, I don't want to ruin everybody's day, but I want to go back to the the um, interesting thing that happened with uh, ruin their day with Eamon Bundy. I respect their platform very much, and I think that what the what they're trying to communicate to the West is a good it's a good conversation. And I often get lectured because I'm a little abrasive when I start conversations, but I want to have that dialogue. I think if you take Eamon Bundy and Clive Bundy, you just a hundred x them from where I usually try and start a fight. <laughs> so, um, the unfortunate thing is when he picked Mal here as the place that he was going to make his stand, the local ranchers that were in Harney County, which is a county adjacent to mine, so I, I'm very familiar with a lot of those people because it's a very small community, Yeah. Um, they were unaware that this is where he was going to make his stand. And Harney County over the years has struggled to develop a really good working relationship with the government agencies in that area. And a lot of the ranchers there were really incensed that he didn't make his stand in his backyard, but he came up here. And uh, it was very frustrating for everybody. And it is not in media, and this is how the media works, but Harney County, the Burns ranchers, got cast as the villains. And they were just, it was just happened that they were in the crossfire. They, had not, they didn't know he was going to be there. There was no plan for him to be there. I think they would have told him not to come if they would have known because of the relationship. And Lake County is the same way. Um, most of Eastern Oregon is, we have very, we have a very good working relationship with our BLM and our Forest Service groups. I'm not going to say that we're hopping around holding hands or anything, but we have developed a mentality that allows us to work through some of the stickier problems. And we know what they're up against and we try and help them as much as possible. Occasionally, we're the guys suing them, but it's not as much as special interest groups. So without speaking for the Burnses and some of the, some of the other ranchers around that area that were made an example of, by CNN in the news. It seems to you from the neighboring county that those local ranchers were 
taken hostage and that they were used as a political pawn. Yeah, I know of guys that tried to go out there and talk about of before it had escalated, and uh, I had the same feelings also. Um, it was really just a really difficult time, and it really set our relations back because it comes down to population. My old county is it's, so the county I live in is um, it's the size of New Jersey. It's the 19th largest county in the United States. Harney County is either the 21st or the 22nd largest county in the United States. They're basically the size of states in the East Coast. Um, but there's very few people. We still count our people per square mile. We still count as frontier. I mean, we don't even classify as rural. We're the next step down. So it doesn't matter what platform or how big our megaphone is to get our message out it gets drowned out and tamped down because the media can do any, they can say anything they want and they can twist the story however they want and there's just not enough voices and loud enough to get out and really set the record straight. Yeah, that's interesting. One step down from rural zoning is vacant, isn't it? They say, no it's, man's land. They say it's frontier. So. <laughs> frontier. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, big big events like that, it's wild that they are not uh, uncommon to eastern vacant frontier Oregon, eastern Oregon, because the Rajneeshkis. Yeah, that was really the first probably litmus test of, that was a 10 year, that was a decade long battle to really, because their PR was so much greater. Oh, they had millions coming in from across the world to, yeah. to back them. And here's these poor guys in Antelope they're saying, look, this is not a good deal. They, they came in and changed the voting of the, how the school was set up, which rural communities in Eastern Oregon, paramount, above all else, value their school systems. And when you start messing with that, it's when, and I think that probably the Rajneeshis knew psychologically that that was going to be devastating for that community. That, and, you know, I, I drew a, uh, I guess I referenced uh, Bundy's holding the Burns as hostage. Um, the Rajneeskis, they did a hostile takeover. It was, yeah. And I have to disclose that I had an ex-girlfriend from Hamburg, so I, uh, I, can, I really felt the, the physically talking to them even after they left. The, that damage that the Rajneeskis did to that community runs deep and still is with them with them oh yeah small towns they don't forget about that no. i mean but the, probably brought up daily at coffee if, do you remember the days when the rajneeshis were out here they're busing homeless out here from portland and la and san francisco well and then what gets lost is because it happened in the dowels was the salmonella poisoning that's right that was biological biological terrorism yeah. before we even knew what it was <clears throat> And um, so that really sticks with people. And uh, it takes a long time to get back from that kind of treatment to trying working with the federal government on anything. Because where the federal government, if the FBI didn't check in an antelope until way later, until after the salmonella poisoning. So. And I think, you know, you bring up a good point. It's been a while since I've watched that documentary on Netflix, but maybe the point was not made well enough that 
that was domestic terrorism organized biological terrorism. Yeah. Yeah, it was and coordinated, yeah. planned, yeah, premeditated. So, if anything like that happened today, <laughs> they'd be Katie part of the door. Well, let's talk about something a little brighter. You know, they sold the MC horses. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ian Tyson has a song about your ranch. Yes. Tell me about how this came together. That you're one of how many owners? I think we're down to nine, maybe now. Started off as 16. I believe. How do you get 16 ranchers to come together to do anything other than drink whiskey? And well, like we're good at that in Warner Valley. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you get 16 people? Well, and what's the background of the MC Ranch? Why was it in an Ian Tyson song? What's what's the legacy there? Adel, it's Oregon. A, it's this amazing story ranch. It's uh, 22. It's about 60,000 continuous acres, about 22,000 of it's uh, the core of the ranch um, is uh, irrigated land out of two different watersheds. It grows a pile of hay, a pile of cattle. About one third of the cattle in, in uh, Lake County come from out of um, Adel and plus, the plush area. How many irrigated acres? About 22,000. Holy shit. But it's tied. That's a big crew. Yeah, but it's divided about amongst nine different owners and yeah. different people that but uh, the MC story was really great and uh, I think before we get started most of my stories are because my parents are exceptional very innovative team of uh, um, husband wife team and in a lot of what my experiences are they set the table for and I just sort of wrote on the coattails of them um, but when I was in high school George Gillette, the guy that owns the razor, that owned the razor company, Gillette Razor. Okay, yeah. He had bought the MC, and it had been in different hands. So, at one time in the '70s and '80s, um, it was big for insurance companies to come in and buy big ranches, and I think it was a hedge against inflation. Which, who knows if we'll see that iteration of financial moving around. Yeah, we're seeing that today for sure. Yeah. Anyways, but so I think he would originally bought it from some insurance company that had bought it in the 70s or 80s. And uh, uh, I he decided he was consolidating. He had Snowbird in Utah, and he just decided he was going to sell it. Well, the only one, the only, the only uh, buyer was the Nature Conservancy. And uh, the Nature Conservancy at any time, even back in the early 90s, could have bought that whole thing and it would have not even, it would have been a big deal for him at the time, but it wouldn't have cost him that much. I think it went for 4.8 million. Oh my gosh. Um, and uh, so the community members said they decided that they wanted to try and buy it, but they had to work together to do it. And, um, anyways, so they gave us a little grace period to try and organize. And we did, we consult, we got everybody, we got these 16 people together and they came up with most of the money. And uh, so the Nature Conservancy was like, we can still buy it. You can't, if you can come up with this amount of money, we'll just come up with this amount of money. And so um, to the Nature Conservancy's credit, they sent some delegates down here, down to Lake County, 
to Lakeview to talk to the community. And this is still one of the most greatest parts, of, one of the greatest experiences in my life. There's a little theater called Alger's Theater in Lakeview. Sits about 300 people. It was completely full. The Nature Conservancy, um, the BLM, and the ranchers that were representing the MC group all got up on the stage and they presented their things. The community asked questions. And by the end of the night, and there were some passionate people, both on the Nature Conservancy side. One of the ladies I still know today, she was actually big in the Matador project. In oh, Alabama. yeah. And in I, Northeast Montana. Yeah, I have a great amount of respect for her. Um, but the Nature Conservancy left that meeting and they said, look, if these guys can buy it and they care that much about it, then we're going to give them time to buy it. And so my parents and the other ranchers worked together and they split up the different things. One, one of them took, uh, one group took over how to break up the deed date, the acres from the one whole deed into the, and how the how things were. And people had to take property that they didn't necessarily want to make it work. And there was houses and shops and crells. And, and the Adel store, right? The Adel store was independent. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there's one group that worked on that. One group that just worked on organizing how the water would be allocated once we split it up into all these different needed acres. And then one group worked on how we were going to run the desert for a minute. Because I think at its peak, they could run, I want to say 6,000, possibly more. We've never run that since we've taken it over, but it still runs a lot of cattle and takes a lot of coordination. Coordination, and uh, with the environmental pressures, it's it's a issue all into itself. So the C group was formed. It still exists today, and uh, it's still very much ran in that way. There's two major groups that run it. One's the Bates Butte Grazing Association, and the other one's the Adel Water Improvement District. And <laughs> I hope none of them hear this, but uh, I hope they all hear it. Yeah, downloads. So, other things that I've been involved with in my life get run by consensus, a hundred percent consensus, and it doesn't matter what your stake is. But it's an idea that everybody works for the greater whole, and uh, so it's like great. communism. Yeah, sort of. My mom always <laughs> jokes. Yeah, it's not like communism, but it consensus in capitalism. I think can be a really um, powerful tool, um, and we, we'll talk about. It, but and they won't say it because everybody in MC has a vote, but it's just one vote for every ranch. It doesn't matter technically how many acres you have. If you have sixty acres and you're part of it, you get a vote. There's nobody that's that small, but so that's like a co-op. In a way, they wouldn't want to say that. And they wouldn't want to say that, no, because I mean, because co ops are communist, yeah, it sort of hurts their uh, patriotic pride. Oh, as, as rugged individuals, as yeah. independent ranchers, yeah, and that's uh, that's one of the interesting things that I struggle with in my life all the time because I've been raised in these type of organizations and arrangements, and I find it to be very uh, beneficial to everybody involved. And they'll never say that they do anything in census, but since 1993, the way that it works is because everybody talks about everything and nobody's trying to get one over on everybody. And we very much run it for the common good. And I guess it would be what, if we wanted to bring it back to the tragedy of the commons, it's a way to combat the tragedy of the commons and take care of your resource. 
Yeah, I mean, the alternative, I, what was the opinion of the Nature Conservancy at that time? Because um, <clears throat> early on in Montana, I think they made big waves doing these big projects. They were not well received by local, <clears throat> excuse me, small, small town community ranchers. They were the environmentalist enemy who was attached to Greenpeace. When Greenpeace was in Missoula, putting steel spikes in the timber so that it would blow up the mill yeah. and kill people. Um, TNC got an unfavorable attachment to that, that type of uh, radical environmentalism, or that radical activism, and totally not the story today. No. I, mean, I mean, they have their, their technical assistance, their, their projects, they're working with ranchers, Totally not what people thought they were back in the 70s when Greenpeace was blowing up wood mills. And that's the that's my joke when I visit Nature Conservancy people, modern day Nature Conservancy people, or even people I meet from the Turner organization. Yeah, yeah, another one. There's been no greater transition from villain to savior in my lifetime than those two organizations. Because I think Turner's problem was just let the buffalo go and let him be buffalo, and it turned out that they're they don't manage themselves very well. And so they had to really reevaluate how they were gonna manage their buffalo herds on their ranches. And in the process, he is saved and preserved some really pristine ecosystems. And whether, regardless of whether you think there should be cows on it or buffalo, that's the end goal is that he's... It's he, providing protein either yeah, way for consumers. He accomplished what he set out to do. Yeah. But he did it. What the way that he thought he was going to do it versus how he ended up doing it were totally different. And I think the Nature Conservancy's trajectory and their learning, their evolution of learning, very much parallel that. Um, do I have problems with some of their politics? Yes, but I think overall, it's one of the greatest transformations I've seen from an environmental group. And it's almost to the point where environmental groups now hate them. <laughs> yeah, well, so we're dealing with. Uh, American Prairie Reserve, the Great American Serengeti, the APR, and I, there's there's strong opinions. I bet Dan Flores doesn't like him stealing his book title. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, everyone loves a good redemption story like that, like uh, TNC. Now, I mean, I would love to do a project with TNC. They they uh, <clears throat> they know how to take a critical look at the natural resource you have and then work with you and cattle, your cattle to improve that natural resource. And what's good for the cow is good for the bird. Well, I think what was interesting, I had a little bit of involvement with the Malta group, the Ranchers Stewardship Alliance. Yes. Yep. Back when it started in like early two, 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 late 2000s. Yep. When TNC bought the Matador. Yes. So um, this was a great story. So the big keystone species in that whole thing, there was two, I guess, the buffalo and the black-footed ferret. Um, but probably most concerned to the federal agencies was the black-footed ferret. Um, and some of the pressures of grazing around the mat location of the matador. I don't know if this is still what they ended up doing, but at the time when I was up in Malta, um, they had already, Nature Conservancy had availed their land to their neighbors so that they could graze on parts of the matador so they could take pressure off of the other private areas where the black-footed ferret was. 
So that was a huge sacrifice, and that was a total different type of uh, mental gymnastics, I think, than what the Nature Conservancy was used to doing. But it was very, I believe, all across the West, that neighboring is one of the most valued thing right up there with education. Like, you help your neighbors. I think early on, the uh, Nature Conservancy wasn't a good neighbor. And this was one of the places when I first experienced them stepping out and being a good neighbor and still ticking the boxes that they needed to tick for their for the people that sponsored them and, and funded them. Absolutely, that that's a grass bank, the Matador. So the grazing capacity that the, that TNC owns, they do give access to neighboring ranchers with uh, terms and conditions and strings attached, and they are very explicit about it. This is our show. Either you subscribe, you abide, or get out. And that's fair. They own the land. They can write the rules. And so, yeah, they turn it into a grass bank. I don't know the exact details. It's actually kind of proprietary. They, they do like to protect what their terms and, and uh, contingencies are, their conditions, which is fine. But like you said, it, um, it has the effect has been conservation on more acres beyond just the matador. And I think that states, so yeah, it is proprietary what they want to do. But that just highlights that conservation is a business. That's okay. We need yeah. it to be profitable. And that's the that's the solution. That's one of the solutions is to have the conservation tied to free market stuff. Absolutely. And uh, so yeah, I don't have any problem with that. If you if you're a rancher there, you're utilizing that resource and it's amenable to you and you can live with it. And that's great. That's a that that is Nature Conservancy monetizing their interests or somehow they're creating value out of that relationship or they wouldn't be doing it. And that's the tricky thing about value and conservation in these big landscapes is maybe we don't completely understand where all the value is and where it is and maybe that's why we have a hard time communicating with our urban brothers and sisters because I don't think they understand the value like we understand the value or how what the value is we can create together moving forward. Yeah, it seems like conservation, there's this ideology that it should be charity. Mm -hmm. that it should be donated or entitled and it should be dictated by a government whether it's city county state federal um, there's this idea that conservation is not something to be monetized and encouraged through free market capitalism and as you mentioned when tnc makes money uh, they're going to go buy another grass bank yeah, I mean, when it works for all parties and there's an actual monetary exchange, both people are getting value, profits are created, those profits are moved to other to utilize other resources where they're going to use them in a way that was probably better than the person before them who couldn't create a profit. And if you go back, if we bring this circle back around to the MC, let's do that. That's, <laughs> that's what we did. We created a new business model that created value, and I. I would really like to go back and do a study from what the ranch, how many people the ranch employed and what the economy was when the ranch was run as a whole compared to when it's ran as nine to ten different organizations and the cottage little, the like hay contractors that have sprung up around it, um, the jobs that we produce as a group to run the infrastructure of the ranch or to, we have range riders, we 
at any given time, we have two to four guys out in the desert that we pay. And uh, I think that it provided an opportunity for families to grow bigger. And so the community, I think, as a whole is larger now and probably has a higher median income than when it was one large ranch. Absolutely. There's probably, I'm just going to jump to a conclusion and assumption, there's probably an independent mechanic in that area. And he serves those nine ranchers, lube, tires, diesel, tractors, swathers, balers. He's an independent mechanic, whereas when the MC was a corporate ranch, he was an employee. Yep. There is. I have a beer with him on Fridays. And so he, he is out there. He is in control. Forget what if he's making, say he's bringing home 70000 a year versus when he was employee, he was at 45000 a year with full benefits. Irrelevant. As an independent entrepreneur, he is in control of his own destiny. Yep. And there's nothing more rewarding for his family, for his self-value, his self-image, for his kids to see that example. There's nothing more rewarding than him being in control of his own destiny. And I think that my idea that we're, it's producing more is um, uh, has created more opportunity for people is by the very fact that we've flattened them out of housing to house all the people that we could employ out there. So constantly there, we're going back and rebuilding older buildings so that we can have the housing or bringing up stuff that had been dilapidated so we can put one more person out there to work for somebody. It's a it's an interesting... Because there weren't enough profits being created as a corporate ranch. Right. There, the, there was no profits to to update uh, deferred maintenance and accumulated depreciation. That's why those buildings buildings got dilapidated. They're, the money was going other places. Wasted. Yep. And then if you look at the MC, um, nine ranchers coming in and buying stuff in Lakeview is better than one large one. So culturally, for sure. Well, I think there's more equipment than there ever was out there. More pickups, more uh, tractors, more haying equipment. Um, maybe less cattle, but everybody. I think all across Eastern Oregon and the Great Basin, there's less cattle than there was in the past. So, so we're gonna have to bring up. <clears throat> Vladimir Putin on the next episode, Rich. Okay. We're nearing the end of this one. I'm glad we got to cover the MC. Are there, uh, what are your, any final thoughts, anything we didn't cover on the MC? Because that was one of the main topics I wanted to discuss. You, you mentioned how <clears throat> it's not a co-op. So maybe clear that up before we go, because I am, I'm going to leave this confused if you don't. It's okay. not a co-op. It's not a corporation. Everyone has their name to their own deed their own titled land mm -hmm. so how is it a ranch it's just nine different ranches isn't it or are you all bound together by one operating agreement or is there a conservation easement in place that binds everyone together i don't understand how this is a this so, is a, a working group i don't why why stick around with anyone go your own way do your own thing so this is something interesting that i uh uh, informally adopted, um, I call them operating entities. They don't necessarily, they don't own much. 
like so the baby's beauty is its own the baby's beauty grazing association is its own business okay it's its own operating energy and i put so when i send cattle out there we set ahead of time what so beyond what the public so people say oh yeah they're getting that public land for two dollars a day or whatever it is now that's not true i uh I usually figure that my AUMs are costing me eighteen dollars to twenty dollars, which is for rangeland that's pretty good market price, and that's what it costs me to run cattle out there and pay for the guys that are doing it. But the, all the insurance is held by the Bay's Beauty Grazing Association; um, it's its own independent operating company. The same with the water district. So you pay your water district fees based on uh, your water rights that you have on the land and it operates as its own. So those are the two organi those are the two parts of the group that force us to continue work together and then the rest is just cultural neighboring and stuff that we've been doing for years. I see. So you guys broke it up into enterprises. Yeah. And the operating entities. So so the the grazing enterprise which became the what buttes? The Vegas Butte Grazing Association. Vegas? Baby? It's a name, like okay. Warren Beatty. Oh, okay, Beatty Buttes. So that became its own enterprise where there's, say today there's nine members of that, who own that operating entity. And then that operating entity then leases from Rich Bradbury and John Q. Smith and Tina. No, we pay it. And it manages the cattle on the, on the public events. Oh, okay. And then we pay in the water district and it manages the water, allocates the water. But each of them has a board of ranchers that makes the decisions for how it works. Each has their own board. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we interchange. So like this year it was my turn to be in the barrel for the water district. So I'm the president of the water district this year. I'm going to do it for another year and then it's going to be somebody else's. In the past I've been the president of the grazing association. So. Eventually, I'm going to have to go back and be the place number one, be on the board of the grazing association because it's just my turn in the barrel again. So, so you, you're term limited. I limited my own term. <laughs> <laughs> one of my uh, high school classmates, she uh, is vice president now, and she'll become the president later on. So, and it's a lot to do. It's and it's not a paying position or anything. So, burnout. No, you usually get ball and told. Yeah, you get ball and told. Yeah, these boards, you, uh, if you're not there when they start electing officers and members, you usually get voted on to something. Yeah. In, in my case, the guy came to me and he goes, uh, and this is the interesting thing. The role very much falls to the person that has the best skill stack at the time to deal with whatever issues happen. Um, and I don't want to be egotistical, but... We tend to get, sometimes our organizations tend to drift into informality and then somebody has to come back in and give it structure and... Robert's rules of order. Yeah. Huh? So it had got, it had drifted away and I'm sort of a hard ass. So they say, hey, why don't you cover in the water district for a while? I don't necessarily, um, yeah. But that's what the role I'm filling for now. And then in a couple of years, there'll be a different role that somebody's more has better experience than what I have that's going to be a better leader at that time. How about hunting, tourism, and recreation enterprise? What's going on there? Um, 
I took a good, we took a good stab at it a couple of years ago. Um, I think we're getting organized. We don't do anything quickly. This is the interesting thing about groups that work together in this way, is if you need, in, if you need immediate decisions, they just don't have them. They, it's like, oh, how would you say it? Running things in a consensus type of basis, even if you have votes, and I don't want to offend anybody, and you can vote up and down and have a majority, but the mentality of it is like putting stones in a rock tumbler. It takes a long time to get those all polished up and having what you put in a really raw product. And what I've found through working through co-ops and working with these groups is oftentimes the raw product that goes in, somebody has some tie to it that they absolutely think that that's what it, how it should be. That's hardly ever the case. When the group gets to put it in the tumbler and roll it around for a while, what comes out is a nice smooth stone that you're proud of and that has some value as opposed to the raw material that went in. That process is ultimately frustrating to some personality types because they're very much decision-oriented, very much driven to make a decision. And oftentimes, and I think you can see this across the West and across corporations, is the first decision is not always the best decision. And that process of refining it has a tremendous amount of value, I think economic value in the long term. That is, dealing with boards. Uh, boards naturally are conservative. They err on the side of caution. They, they are risk management. And they're like slow government. You don't make knee-jerk reactions because you're compromising everyone's value. You're compromising years and years of profits and hard work and processes that are in place. So yeah, and though I'll be the first to say I don't do well in co-ops and boards because it it is it's a very big challenge to to have to hash out and compromise and accept that things are going to be thought thought out for weeks and months and and then if they do they'll be tested at a small level they're not going to jump in head first because it could be the shallow end that you're jumping into so it is tough for me as a maverick as an independent to group group work like that i've never done well it's probably a character defect of mine a downfall but I understand and that that is impressive that you guys have been able to make it work and that's not your first rodeo so when we come back we'll talk about the other communist organization you started <laughs> must be from all that experience in Russia huh yeah yeah <laughs> we'll talk about that too your time in Russia where you learned you really learned this Marxist ideology yeah 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 <laughs> really had it beat into me <laughs> The uh, the Bolshevik rancher, yes. Rich Bradbury. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, Rich. Uh, if anyone wants to learn more about the MC Ranch and Eastern Oregon, how do they get a hold of you or your real estate services? So um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so that's the best place to get a hold of me. I just type my name in, Rich Bradbury, and uh, just if you're a sensitive soul, think about it um yeah he holds no punches uh on, on linkedin he he will call a spade a spade as he sees it for sure so if you're sensitive i'm might, often wrong but i'm trying to might not want to befriend him 
<laughs> and then uh, my company in Eastern Oregon is High Country Real Estate, and uh, it's been in business since '73, and we're trying to re-resurrect re re its uh, ranch sales. The good old days when it sold ranches, and we we've been successful with it, and uh, it's it holds a place in my heart because uh, it was part of the community, and it's uh, nice to be able to keep that as part of the community. Well, there's no better time to start a rural real estate company than now because <clears throat> with with millennials and retirees moving to the rural areas and maybe in your area you're getting some new migrants from the coast from some portland refugees who are just tired of antifa out there burning the city down <laughs> I, I get a lot of those i do get a lot of those yes. um uh the other blm not the one that you graze with from, yeah. the, from them starting riots so yeah I, I think rural america does have a great future and if people need a good agent in eastern oregon reach out Reach out to Rick Bradbury. Uh, lots of uh, lots of years of experience there, starting with some, starting with the Irish sheep herders. Yes. Well, thanks for coming on, Rich. Look forward to the next one. All right. Thanks, Cole. Click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer, to refer, to refer, to refer to refer.